Hello. Perhaps of all France's adversaries during the 1792 to 1815 period, three stand out to me as being ripe for particular examination. Austria, for the inherent weaknesses behind its repeated failures. Britain, because above all as a Brit, I've grown up in the shadow of Nelson's Column and Waterloo and the Peninsula War and all the rest. And above all, Russia. I have to say, I have no idea before starting this project that in the early 1790s, in 1792, it wasn't the French Revolution that everyone was talking about. It was what Russia was up to in Poland uh, that, that mattered most to the great powers. Well, in the coming episodes, we'll be hearing about Russian forces taking the fight against France as far west as northern Italy and Switzerland. And um, I haven't even got on to 1812 and Alexander's spiritual advance all the way to Paris. So I'm, lo I'm looking forward to hearing more about um, not just Europe. It's not just Europe. We've got developments in the Levant, the Caucasus, and Iran, where Russia and the Austrians will be coming to blows and occasionally patching things up again and again. Anyway, all of this explains why we've been looking at the Second Coalition from the Russian perspective with Elise kimmeling Wirtschafter, who has devoted her long and distinguished academic career to uh, considering Russia's internal dynamics largely. It's a, a socio-cultural lens that she's taken to examining social identity in Imperial Russia, the role of religion, the role of ideas in the Enlightenment, and of course, serfdom and the structure of Russian society itself. Well, at least this is all big picture stuff, so I'm not sure how you'll have felt zooming in quite as much as we've just done with those two segments on the symmetry. Well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not much of a Zoomer to tell you the truth. I, I, I tend to roam and I tend to think want to think about history broadly. Um, wow. So wow. I, I hope yeah. I had enough that was specific to say was for your podcast. Yeah. It was um, marvelous. Thank you very not much. not my strength, you know, because, um, <laughs> and I think that that comes from my, my uh, training, you know, I was trained as a social historian. Um, and the, the, you know, in the Anal school tradition of the the 70s, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. And, you know, there was this idea of history from below and also the idea of what was called histoire totale. In other words, you start with the history from below. You know, you start with the social and economic arrangements and structures. And then you go up to, you move up to culture, to politics, you know, to the elites. So, so my my thinking tends to be, and the way my research has evolved, um, it's it's been starting with history from below, starting with the bottom, with the common soldier, but then moving into culture, and then eventually, um, and ideas, as you say, um, and then in the last instance to uh, diplomacy, international diplomacy, foreign policy. So it's a little bit of everything, I guess. Yeah, well, absolutely. And it's, it's particularly challenging, or it feels like it's particularly challenging to sort of link up the experience of a surf with, with you know, we've just been talking about the salons in St. Petersburg, complete, worlds completely removed from, from each other. But as you say, they are, they are interlinked and interdependent. Many of those, most of those people would have been surf owners. Right. Yes, indeed. They had their role as... Yeah, their, ro their role at the top. And, and their connections with the 
the people, you know, with the common people, whether and also as military commanders. So they they would have been surf owners um, and many of them would have been military commanders who might have had interactions with with ordinary soldiers as well. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, we've talked a lot about how marvellous Britain was uh, in terms of linking up the, you know, the, the city, the commercial interests with with sort of national national interests. But I think you're, you're you're just sort of gently suggesting there that that a lot of these surf owning elites were, you know, connected. I, they sort of had a sort of constituency of their own. Um, and that they were they were linked to, to 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 their serfs, and they all were linked through religion. You know that was a huge. I mean, you when you read mo- noble memoirs, memoirs written by the most elite aristocrats, they sometimes describe, you know, going to church in their on their estate. You know where where the peasants would have also been going to church. So. So there's definitely and and then there's the you know the the loyalty to the monarchy the the belief in the in the monarch that that very powerful do you know I I uh, read uh, old Peter's Russian tales those uh, Arthur Ransom penned folk tales of um, Russia I think he did them in the first decade of the 20th century and um, the Tsar in in those tales is told as a you know, such a distant magical figure um, that's so unifying and so important. But um, let let me ask you whether so. Okay, you've been looking at the social secrets, the, the social secrets of understanding Russian approaches in this period. What what would you say? I think you've already alluded to a few of them. But if we're trying to understand what what are the what are the hidden factors that guide that are the, that like the root of Russian diplomacy and Russian foreign policy as we're viewing them in 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 this podcast um how, how how would you describe what's going on inside russia that that are the big drivers there well i i mean i think if we if we go back to the petrine reforms where all of this begins because we're really in the early 19th century we're still talking about um the petrine system uh we're not yet you know, there's a spectrum across Europe in terms of when modernity has its onset, you could say. And we all were educated around the French Revolution. I mean, we basically, maybe not in Britain, but most of us were educated. Most of us had a Jacobin education when it comes (laughs) to, you know, the history of the French Revolution and the emergence of modern, modern Europe. You know, in Russia, one one probably has to say that the 1789 moment came not until the emancipation of the serfs in 1861. So, so this period for Russia um, is one where where I think the the established institutions are are proving to be very strong. And in many ways, proving their worth. I mean, the the Napoleonic Wars actually reinforce the traditionalism of of Russian society and politics. And the the as far as drivers and underlying dynamics, again, I go back 
to the Petrine reforms where, you know, Russia or Russia's rulers, one should say, you know, we, it's hard to say now, do we, are we talking about Russia or are we talking about Peter? That's always a question. Um, and, uh, you know, Russia wants to compete, needs to compete with the European powers. And how is Russia going to do that? Russia has to build a military capability. Russia has to, you know, in order to secure those Western borders, um, Russia needs a, a strong state and needs educated people and a modern bureaucracy. So all of these, I, I really think that the Petrine reforms and, and much of the Europeanization that we talk about in a very fundamental way stemmed from the desire or the need, the necessity to compete militarily in the European arena. Um, and Russia had to do that with, with, you know, this, with limited communications infrastructure, with a, with a peasant economy, basically, and a serf army. And this it was a big it. job. <laughs> well, indeed. Uh, now, I'm not quite sure where the Jeffrey Hoskin quote will come in, but the idea that uh, Russia is an empire in its very nature, uh, whereas Britain had had an emperor, it turned into an empire, that Russia grew up being an empire, this sort of yeah, I'm not sure what all that means because, and that's one of those statements that, so in, in our field today, you may have heard this, we're supposed to be decolonizing our minds. And uh, it's, I mean, that's the phrase, literally. <laughs> and, and you know, we we have to think about imperial expansion in a different way and more of a post-colonial ideological way. And that's, um, that's not how I'm accustomed to thinking of Russian empire and maybe the, the older approach about this kind of natural inevitable expansion that, that needs to be corrected, you know, in the same way that, uh, the westward expansion of the United States is being corrected. So these aren't questions that I've, I've researched or thought that much about, um, but it, you know, there, there's definitely rethinking going on in that area. And I'm not sure that, that the older understandings are necessarily, um, should necessarily be thrown out, you know, because I think there are differences in the ways that empires get, get built. Um, and I'm not sure post-colonial theory takes all of that into account. Well, how would you just how would you describe those traditional approaches then? What's what's your what's been the sense that you've had for most of your working career uh, about what what has drove expansion in Russia? Well, in, in the Russian context, yeah. That the quote from Jeffrey Hosking that Russia was an empire that that as at the same moment that that what you might call early modern state building began, Russia already was an empire, was an imperial power. And um, where again, I you know, I think the 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 lack of natural barriers was very important. So so I mean, where do you draw the line between 
subjugating Central Asian nomadic peoples um, and and actually engaging in settler colonialism. You know, is it the same thing? I don't know. That's, you know, that's the question now. Um, and so we tended to think of it as, again, as a more defensive posture oriented toward establishing secure borders and protecting Russian serfs or peasants. Um, but I'm not sure that that works in today's world, you know? Well, I have to say, I mean, this question of whether or not we talk about contemporary events and, and war in Ukraine, a lot of what you're saying resonates with some of the narratives coming out of Russia. And I hesitate to to sort of say that say that makes sense because it's completely Correct. at odds. Well, it's completely at odds with the system of international norms that we've been trying to maintain um, since the Second World War. But in the in the sixteenth century, the seventeenth century, the eighteenth century, we're talking about a different world, right? And so, um, yes, those norms weren't there. And I guess the question I would ask someone who studies these issues and really thinks about them is, is there any society on earth that in its modern form, you know, did not engage in settler colonialism or in the subjugation and conquest of, of, um, weaker neighbors. I don't know, you know, is, is there any, any society where that's true? You know, even within a European society, when you look at different regions and, and, um, territories. So I don't know. I'm, but I think the idea is that those things were settled a long time ago and the efforts are made to, you know, m maintain a union and keep everyone happy rather than keep everyone subjugated. <laughs> Well, maybe so, you know, and so some societies did that more more successfully than others, right? Yes, you, yes, absolutely. Yes, you, and that's where absolutely. modern citizenship and the idea of the nation comes in. But um, so in you know in Russia also there was such a vast range of societies and cultures in in terms of you know levels of not levels of development but patterns of development um it was just such a complicated situation and there was so much variation you know everything from nomadic societies to to your your powerful polish lithuanian state which had almost subjugated muscovy at one point you know so so there the the range of of um, subjugated peoples and yeah. their relative power and the types of organization that they lived by. I mean, it was just so, so variegated. It's so, it's so interesting. And, and I, I suppose one question to ask is how did you get, how, how did you end up doing your, your, as I say, your working career, looking, looking at Russia? When did your interest in Russia first develop? My interest in Russia first developed. I took a I took a class by accident. 
when I was a freshman in college because in the American, <laughs> you know, in the American system, we have this general education and and as a first semester freshman, you never get the class you asked for, you know, and I I wanted a history class because I liked history and I actually I think I asked for Latin America. I never would have imagined to ask for Russian history. I just I, I figured, OK, Latin America, that's the neighboring history. You know, I had had my U.S. history in high school and and I didn't uh, I didn't get the class. I was closed out of it. And so, you know, this is pre-computer. They just assigned me a class and it was a Russian history class. And I didn't want to. The only way to exchange it for a different class would be to go to the gymnasium and stand in line all day, you know, to drop an ad and look for another class. I just, I said, I'll just take it. Wow. It's so funny. It answered, it answered questions that I had at that time in my life. I, I grew up in the deep South and there are a lot of parallels between the American South and Russia. There are certain parallels and I found answers to my my southern childhood questions, I think, in Russian history. Then I read War and Peace. <laughs> yes. And I, after that, I was, you know. <laughs> War and Peace is, it, it, it is a, a vast book in a way that, you know, mirrors the country that it's, that it's portraying. And it is a great, um, a great read. And it covers, it covers so many historical situations, you know, so many historical reality. Um, and, and I suppose it must have appealed to you because it was describing some of the social dynamics in Russia and how they sort of fitted into that diplomatic and sort of the big picture history. And I suppose it's that relationship that's, yeah. There's a lot of social history in, in that book. And there, you know, and then there's also the philosophy of history. If you read all the, you know, not just the, the, end. the <laughs> novel part, but you read all the dis whatever the excursus is and the epilogues and all of that there's a lot of totally goes for it at the end doesn't he and uh, and talks about a tides of humanity it's got nothing to do with napoleon bonaparte it's just tides of humanity heading east and then the back the other way it's fascinating <laughs> that no one controls there's a lot in there about how the people who think they're in control or who are trying to be in control really aren't you know so does that stand up in your view in the 1792 to 1815 period in russia where we see figures like alexander who are very fixed on going in a certain direction um and of course above all the person after whom these wars are named napoleon um who just couldn't quite ever say stick. He always wanted to twist and push her a bit more. With the, you mean with the people not being in control? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tide of history versus great man, I suppose. Well, yeah. I mean, I so Tolstoy. You know, he. I'm. I'm not a philosopher, and I'm not a Tolstoy scholar either. But, but when I wrote my first book, which attempted was was a social history of the common soldier where I was trying to, you know, understand the everyday life of the common soldier and especially the mentality, you know, having been influenced by E.P. Thompson and, and that whole school of history, you know, where your social consciousness, right? 
Um, I was trying to understand the social consciousness of the Russian common soldier. And, um, you know, and, and then you, you read Tolstoy with the battle scenes especially. Um, and I, I mean, I was never able to even begin to think about how a Russian soldier may have experienced battle because, you know, Tolstoy had written about that. Um, and so the idea that a historian could describe it in a more effective manner or, or could understand it, it just, it just didn't make sense, you know? So I, I think it was the, the war, you know, the experience of war that he described so well and that really, you know, helps you to understand how, how things are, they're, they're just happening around you and you're going with the flow, so to speak. Well, he, he does a pretty good job. Absolutely. What, what, now here's a question for you. If you could go back in time and, because I noticed I had my 40th birthday recently. So I was born in 1983, which is when I noticed, I noticed that's when you, you, you finished your PhD, I think. So what would you say to PhD, Elise, you know, just finishing that process with the advice of four decades since then? Um, what, what advice would you give to yourself? about studying Russia or, or, or just working as a historian in general during those years? Well, so in some ways, we're back to those years now. Yeah, that's true. Because of the, because Russia is once again a repressive dictatorship. And so I'm, and I'm finding myself explaining to younger colleagues um who did their graduate work and wrote their books, their first books during this period of access and and relative freedom that some of the skills we acquired back in the Soviet period um, might be useful now, you know, as far as how how one chooses a topic and you know, how one does research without being able to go to the archives, um, all of those constraints. I mean, we were able to go to the archives, but it was never certain that we would be able to. You know, there was always a question, even if you went on the exchange, you that didn't mean they were going to give you material when you got there. Did you... Um travel to Moscow or, or behind the Iron Curtain in the 80s? Yes. Yeah, so my, so in order to write my dissertation, I, I went on for 10 months, 10 or 12 months on the IREX, IREX exchange. Um, and that was the only way to go and do research in the former Soviet Union. Um, and so I went in 80, 81 and um you know there was a process it was it was a a scientific exchange it was an official exchange that came under a, a cultural agreement between the US state department and the the one of the russian ministries um or one of the soviet ministries rather and so you know it there we we were People started getting archives in the in the 70s. People were getting archives, and maybe starting in the 
in the late 60s. The exchange actually went back to the late 50s. Um, but in the, 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 the late, from the late 60s until the end of the Soviet Union, there was this sense of we're getting more and more access. But it was still restricted and you still didn't know if they would give you access and you had to choose your topic. You had to formulate your topic in a way that would be acceptable to to the Soviet system. So, um, you know, we were all in some way, uh, you could say, compromised, right? Morally compromised. There was a certain moral uh, um What's the word? I'm not sure how to say it. And, and, and I think it's an accommodation. An accommodation, you could say. Yeah, I mean, it was if you if you wanted to get archives. Yeah. And as a social historian, you did right. Social history was all the rage, and if as a social historian, you really needed archives. It wasn't like intellectual history. Um, and so, you know, yeah. So you accommodated yourself to the system. And uh, you chose topics. I mean, there there was a kind of convergence, a happy convergence, a natural convergence between the Marxist-oriented Soviet history writing, right, which was all about the class struggle and the economic and economic development relations of production, and and the new social history that was so popular in the West. So there was a kind of uh, common, uh, you know, common understanding, common interest in certain topics. Um, It was just a moment, you know, it was a, it was one of those moments, one of those historical moments where things came together. And what a stark contrast with the situation now where, as you say, it's back to the future, but we're really in a situation that is similar to, to to that in the eighties, and and uh, things are much more unpleasant. How how do you feel about the war in Ukraine as a, as a historian? Is it possible to to you know get your head around it and understand what's driving it, or are there lots of question marks here? Lots of question marks. So I I agree with if you I I listen to try to listen to Ukrainian historians. I, I basically agree with what Serhi Plohi says. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's he's a Ukrainian historian at Harvard. He's written a lot of books. I just finished reading one of his books on Ukrainian history. And, and he basically describes it as, you know, this is the last gasp of European imperialism. You know, the, the end of the great European empires and Russia, you know, the the Russian Russian control over Ukraine is the Russian empire's last last attempt to to maintain that that imperial system which you know, most of Europe abandoned um, I mean, there were parts of your, you know, Portugal, France, it took until the 60s and 70s, yes, to to really let go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and so he sees he sees this as the end of that process. 
that that makes sense because what Russia is doing in this war to us belongs to a different century. Yeah, it does feel like that, doesn't it? Can you understand the drivers behind Putin's approach? Given, given, you know, if 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 uh, well, we heard Simon Sebag Montefiore talking about the the the, the um, Putin having th- three advisors. Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and I'm not sure who the third one was. Was it Stalin or something like that? But anyway, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, it's. But again, our you know, so yeah. Do do I understand Russia's, you know, need drive assumption that that Ukraine is part of Russia? Do I understand that? Yes, in historical terms. But does that make sense in the 21st century? No. If if Ukrainians have have developed in a way and that that leads them to see themselves as a separate nation um, and to want independent sovereignty, then they're entitled to that, you know. And and even if even if the history is very entangled um, and even if it's sometimes hard to distinguish Russian history from Ukrainian history, though it depends on which part of Ukraine you're talking about, right? Because there are different parts of Ukraine and they have different histories. But, you know, if you're talking about the Russian part, the the eastern part of Ukraine um, or even Kiev, uh you know that that doesn't mean that Russia is entitled to invade another country. You know, it just at this point in time. So you can have all those those historical ties, but that doesn't change the reality of the moment, um, which is one in which Ukraine wants to be independent and and Russia's in violation of treaties that that recognize that independence. Whereas in in the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars, that the context was different, and you know, we talk about the long eighteenth century, it was still going. And to perhaps to finish, I might ask you to situate the Napoleonic period for Russia in that that broader context, um, and and maybe even ask you because I think a lot of people in the West think about. Napoleonic, it was the struggle between Britain and France. What was Russia's role in the 1792 to 1815 period? Why did, why did Russia matter um, when, it, when it came to deciding the fate of Europe and indeed the fate of the world during, during those years? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think Russia mattered because it was Russia... Alexander, primarily Alexander I, who who understood that Napoleon had to be dethroned. I mean, and and the Allies tried repeatedly to to make an accommodation with him, and that included Russia. But he, as you mentioned earlier, he just wouldn't stop. <laughs> and and you know, Russia led the way, having withstood the. The invasion of 1812, that was the beginning of the end, you could say, um, for Napoleon militarily. And that was the beginning of the successful effort, unlike the second coalition, the successful effort to 
to build a coalition that that stayed together long enough to sustain the the military effort that was that was required. So, you know, my so my views of Napoleon have completely changed from my from my student days, you know, when, as I mentioned before, we were all really given a Jacobin education when it came to the French Revolution and the Napoleonic reforms, as they were called, right? Right. You know, that's how we thought of Napoleon as this great reformer who spread these ideas of equality across Europe, you know, when in fact he was a conqueror who um, destroyed and and economically subjugated vast territories. And I think, so Russia had the power, again, because of this army, this is the thing about, you know, and this is one of the topics I, I have studied um, as a researcher, the 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 ability of Russia to mobilize a large army, to mobilize the resources to sustain a war effort in very difficult circumstances. Um, and Russia did this, and that's that's one reason I worry about the current situation, because I, you know, my understanding of Russian military capability is that no matter how bad it may look, as far as technology, as far as losses, you know, as far as just general dysfunctionality, um, that doesn't mean they can't sustain the the fight. Um, and that's, so they were able to do that, you know, with this peasant army and within the old institutions, the what what in the French, in the French revolutionary context would be called the, you know, the institutions of the ancien regime, right? They did it within those, within that framework. Um, So it was this peasant serf army that defeated the, the modern citizen army, you could say. Um, And, you know, I, I think that that was, an enormous contribution. And then, of course, Russia was, to get to my last book, um, Russia was very, Russia's ruler and, and diplomats were very active in the peacemaking that followed. And and that's the part where also where the current situation makes me a little uncomfortable or makes me think that my history writing is uncomfortable. You know, to, I wrote a book about Russia's contribution to peacemaking in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars. And now I'm thinking, right. does that make any sense? <laughs> but, but, but I think what we've talked about, the threads are all there. So we, we were talking about Paul looking to build that second coalition and seeking alliances, having recognised that France was an adversary. As we see throughout the period, you know, tussling over Poland and that Alexander will be there at the Congress of Vienna at the end, pushing for what he wants. Um, and he and gets that, it. In Poland, he gets it. He gets it, but also, but at the same time, we've talked about the, the salons and those European-facing elites, but with their sort of roots in the in the in the countryside, with their their serfs, and ultimately, as you say, it's the serfs who are marching, as Tolstoy would put it, across this tide of humanity heading the west. The movement of of the peoples, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is all of a piece with. Um, 
a country that is now engaged in something that is essentially utterly unacceptable to to international norms but you can, we we can see the historical ties that make it so so ill ill fitting today and so uncomfortable today so what what a conversation this has been but perhaps make it make it powerful i mean i just keep you know like my children or everyone i know is so disgusted by the situation and and they don't you know to them russian history is just a boring topic or an uninteresting topic at this point but but it's you know i keep saying but even even if this doesn't make sense to us and even if this is is an outrage um that doesn't mean they can't do it and it doesn't mean they won't continue to do it and so you know that's the reality not the fact that it's it doesn't fit with present day norms that yeah that that makes sense to us but that's that's not going to change what what russia does or what russian policy is so yeah i feel like in the earlier you know in the period the napoleonic era russia russia was trying to be part of the european system russia was part of the european system whereas now it it doesn't care yeah yeah and i and i don't accept this idea that nato is you know that nato is to blame i mean i i think nato probably it definitely needs reform and it probably could have been reformed you know the there there could have been conversations and and reforms starting in the 90s and there probably should have been but that doesn't change the fact that the small peoples of eastern europe have a right to decide if they want to be part of nato or if they want to be part of of the european union and russia can't dictate that to them yeah well i, I mean i've i i uh did spend some time working for a UK parliamentary strengthening organization which promoted um uh well we, we were supporting the Vakovna Rada the, the parliament in Kiev and developing their ability to counter corruption and you know is that this was all about that was that organization that uh, was set up after the fall of the Berlin Wall as to to support eastern european countries transitioning to democracy and Perhaps, perhaps all the NATO stuff should be seen in that context of, of um, that sort of democratizing mission, um, and sort of the, the natural sort of flow towards freedom, as it were. Um, very different in the nineteenth century, of course. But so interesting to hear from you and explore how the same trends and ideas and patterns and ways the grain of of, of Russian policy. Uh, it remains consistent between then and now it's it's fascinating and more than a little bit disturbing and worrying yeah i mean i think in the napoleonic wars too the strength as i said before the the strength of the established institutions of the traditional institutions um was exposed i mean it 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 wasn't a situation that that showed Russia or Russians that they needed to change. It was a situation that that actually validated their their very traditional institutions, which to some extent still exist, you know? So 
And so it continues, yeah. So yeah, I, th- I think the power of tradition, I mean, that's kind of a vague word, right? Tradition, cult, but but just the power, I don't know, what what do you call it now? The power of historical memory, the power of traditional identities and traditional culture, the power of culture. Maybe it's just the power of culture. Well, and, and the culture of power in Russia as well, as I think Tim Planning once put it. But um, look, Elise, um, it's so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. And well, thank you, Alex. I, I hope I gave you what you need. Absolutely. Your, your unique perspective on, on this period and everything that goes with it. Thanks again to Elise, who'll be returning in a couple of episodes' time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Napoleonic Quarterly, and I hope you'll consider supporting the podcast too. Become a patron by searching for Napoleonic Quarterly on Patreon, and help me pay for the audio editor, whose services will allow me to create more content. Review the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, to help us grow the audience. Or send us a question to napoleonicquarterly at gmail.com and I'll get one of our brilliant historians to come up with an answer for you. As always, thanks for listening and bye for now.